Praise God. If you're there, say amen. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Verse number 17 is a gem. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. I want to speak for a few moments this morning on the ironic coronation, the ironic coronation. Let's ask that God would reveal something to us today from the scripture and strengthen us today. Lord, we thank you and praise you today for your blessing and your goodness. We thank you for the inspiration and power of your word. We ask that you would direct us today, our thoughts, our motivations, our meditations, and let it be centered for a few moments today in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Paul references in this passage the king eternal. Now into the king eternal. Eternity is not something you can get your brain completely around. It's rather difficult. It's kind of like infinity. Infinity in mathematics goes in a positive direction and in a negative direction. And it continues forever. Infinity. It goes to Infinity. There is even a symbol that describes infinity. It looks like a sideways number eight. And in mathematics, if you are going in a vector direction, even if you have an endpoint and you're going in a particular direction, it never ends. So when we talk about eternity, that's something difficult to grasp. And when we talk about infinity, that is also something that is difficult. We would rather have closure because our finite minds, we like to control things and that is somewhat something outside of our control. And so we struggle with that. Even when you talk about the origin of all things in the beginning, God, okay, what happened before the beginning and where was God and what was going on? Our minds, because we are finite humanity, Uh, And we're not comfortable with things that we cannot (laughs) manipulate and control ourselves. And so sometimes that causes problems, keeps us awake at night. For some of us, that may keep you awake. Some of us, you're like, I don't care. I'm just going to have a good night's rest and breakfast will be in the morning. But sometimes when you ponder some of these things and think on some of these things, you can't get your head around it. And this scripture reveals to us there are concepts and truths beyond our limitations that we cannot see, we cannot grasp. We know that they are there. For example, if you were to get into a discussion of theodicy, that is the study of evil. Uh, There's some things that I cannot see. I, I live in a spiritual world. Some things I cannot grasp with my senses, but 
I can tell and know when, when, when there is something that is evil that takes place. Um, and we cannot see some things. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 12, to try to help us with the predicament that we find ourselves in. He said this, this way in chapter 13, verse 12, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. I, Paul said, I, I'm looking through a glass darkly. I can't see and comprehend. I can't comprehend all that is going to take place in heaven. Uh, I, I can't comprehend that. I, I know this, that in this earthly life, whatever heaven is going to be like is going to so far surpass what we experience in this life that if we knew what it was really going to be like, we would not ever want to stay here or go back to an earthly existence. Now, there are good things in life, and sometimes we want to hang on to those, but I, I guarantee you this, that if we got a glimpse of the heavenly, the earthly things would pale in comparison, and we would recognize we would much better be with the Lord than to be apart from the Lord. That's why there is significance in coming to the house of God and worship and serving a sovereign God because you get your focus in the right place. My focus cannot be on this terra firma. I've got to make sure my priorities are centered not in this world, but they are centered on heavenly things. My kingdom is not in this world, but my kingdom is the kingdom of God. That's what I'm pursuing. That's what I'm following after. Anybody here thankful that even for just a few moments today, we have felt the presence of God in a way that helps us to recognize what I'm feeling in this place in the house of God is better than anything that could happen on the outside of God. We are here to worship and serve the King of Kings. And somebody clap your hands and thank the Lord that his presence can be felt in the house of God today. I cannot understand eternity but I can understand the king. I may not understand what happens in the future, but I can understand what Jesus Christ has richly done. He has come to save sinners. He has come so that we might obtain mercy. He has come so that he can show us long suffering or patience. He has come so that he might be able to present to us everlasting life. This is why we praise the king. This is why we worship the scripture said the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. You're not serving an inferior God in the house of God today, but you are serving a God that is supreme and powerful and able to do above and beyond what we can even think or ask. Has he ever answered a prayer for you? Has he ever healed your body? Has he ever come through with counsel to you? Has he ever provided to you? He's the King of Kings. And he is the Lord of Lords. The psalmist started writing about in those ancient days of the Old Testament. In Psalm 24, verse number 7, descriptions and discussions about the unseen king. Psalm 24, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up you everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, 
and even lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Salah. The irony in this is even the inanimate objects, according to the psalmist, are supposed to worship this King of glory. <laughs> lift up your heads, O ye gates. When you come in, you prayer gates out there. When you open, you better be worshiping the Lord. Amen. I don't know if Kevin Condren was able to program that into the system, but it ought to be in there. Whenever the gate opens, you're worshiping God. Amen. When you enter through the gates, you should say, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and worship the King of Kings. The gates should worship God. The pews should worship God. The pillars should worship God. The doors should worship God. The carpet should worship God. And so here the psalmist is challenging the inanimate objects and by by way of challenging the inanimate objects, he's challenging the animate objects. We are not inanimate objects. These are inanimate objects. We are animate objects, which means we have life and breath in us. We are not a pedestal, a piece of steel, a piece of wood. We are not anything that is associated with an inanimate object. And that is what makes us different. We are animated, which means there is life and breath and God has breathed something into us. And so if we're animated objects, I'm not going to let the pew worship for me or the gate worship me or the door worship for me or an inanimate object worship me because I'm animated. I'm animated to worship God. I'm animated to give him praise. I'm animated to recognize who he is. Praise God. The irony is the psalmist is saying, worship that king that cannot be seen, the king who cannot be seen. He's the king who speaks the creation into existence. He's the king that warns Noah and his family of impending doom. He's the king that calls Abraham out of the earth of Chaldees. He's the king that appears to Jacob in a dream. He is not seen. He's the unseen king. He's the king who gives a dream to Joseph. He's the king that calls Moses from the midst of a burning bush. And so in those ancient pages of trying to understand who the king is, he is an unseen king. When he appears to Moses and Moses wants validation of his kingship. Moses says unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. This is the validation. That's not something that is seen. That is not even a complete name. And yet in that I am that I am, there is a, there's a statement of faithfulness that is found in the unseen king. They didn't have the opportunity of seeing the supremacy and the totality of the God who was a spirit. They didn't have that opportunity. But they did have an understanding that we may not be able to see him, but he said he's going to be with us. And so that is a statement of God's 
faithfulness. That's the dichotomy of the Old Testament. I can't see him. Other people worship figurines, gods of wood and stone, but we don't. We worship a God that cannot be seen. But this is one thing they had their confidence in, that no matter what we go through, it may be the Red Sea, it may be through the wilderness, it may be into a promised land. This one thing we know, that wherever we go, God is going to be faithful and he's going to be with us. We don't have a central object that may be a pillar of fire, a cloud, but we know that wherever we go, God is is leading us and he's directing us. I want you to know today that they didn't have the opportunity of knowing who Jesus was, but they had something in common with us and this is what it is. God is faithful to us no matter what you go through, where you go through, what you face. God's a God that is the I am and the I am is going to walk with you in your circumstance. Hallelujah. Anybody thankful for that? (laughs) Could anybody here today testify there were circumstances in a hospital room? There were circumstances when everything seemed like it was falling apart and I didn't know where to turn to, didn't know what to do, but all of a sudden God's presence and ability was there wherever I was. We need to be thankful for that. We, We need to never discount that and to know that God is faithful to us. But in the Old Testament, they didn't have the opportunity of seeing any kind of totality or Christology or God appearing in a central way. It was always in temporary forms. It was the king that was unseen. This king that leads the children of Israel out of bondage. This king who is unseen. He is a spirit, Yahweh. And this this is what differentiates them from the rest of the world. You don't need images. You don't need idols. You don't need tangible evidence of your God. But this does not mean I am not with you. I'll be a cloud by day. I'll be a pillar of fire by night. I'll be a burning bush. I'll speak in terms of my hand and my face and my arm and my ear will be with you and my voice will be with you. And there was great temptation to turn from what cannot be seen to hold on to the gods of this nation. That was their temptation. I want to hang on to the gods of the nations that are around me and the idolatry that is associated with that worship. Praise God. I'm thankful I'm not worshiping the idolatry idolatry of the world. I want to come out of that world and I want to worship the king. I don't want to be associated with the idolatry of the world. I don't want its vanity vexation me, vexating me and pulling at me and influencing me and and causing me all kinds of pain, angst, depression, frustration, anxiety, stress, and pressure. When I came to the house of God today, I came in here with the freedom and a liberty to worship God and magnify him because I recognize his peace, his strength, his anointing. Do I have a witness in the house of God today? What you've got is of great, great value. Don't follow the dictates of a world. Follow the mercy and faithfulness of God. Chapter 44, verse number 8. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it? You are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity. 
and their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses, they see not nor know, that they may be ashamed who hath formed a god or a molten, a graven image that is profitable for nothing. Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen, they are of men. Praise God. What God has done in your life is not the work of humanity. It's the work of God. And sometimes that's all you can hang on to because humanity will let you down, but God will never let you down. And the miracle that he has performed in your life is not of humanity. It's of God. Praise God. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 17. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images that say to molten images, you are our gods. This is the unseen God speaking to humanity to avoid the error of trusting in something he created. This is God saying, why would you worship the creation when you could be worshiping the creator? You're caught up in worship of creation, but there is a creator that has created. Don't get caught up in that. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse number 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you that are escaped of the nations that have no knowledge, that set up the wood of their graven image, and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Hath not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior there is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. You can sense a divine frustration. <laughs> we make statements and there are statements in scripture that he's a God that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That means that he is, he is infinitely wealthy. He's the king of glory. He's, he has everything in his capacity and the divine frustration is... I'm an unseen king, and the constituents won't worship me, and, and their, their, their thought patterns are to the gods that they make with stone and wood and metals. Even Solomon, when he reflected upon this in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27, and he summarized this discussion, he said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. The king, by that very fact, exhibits and displays the power and royalty. Heaven of heavens. It is amazing. He speaks. Walls fall. He speaks through animals. He speaks in creation. He speaks and there is a control of nature. Yet, yet, yet. Though he is crowned and respected in the dimension of heaven, the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, and there is no problem in the heaven recognizing his sovereignty. The problem is not in heaven. The problem is in earth. He is crowned and respected in the dimension of heaven, yet he is crownless in the dimension of earth. And so he comes, the ironic coronation. He comes as a king that is unseen, to be coronated among a people. And the way that he is crowned is ironic. You know what? Let me just say right here. I don't care who wants to make fun of my worship 
to God. I'm going to worship anyhow. You have lost your mind. You have absolutely lost every brain cell up in your cranium. If you think that people can go out, shout, jump up, down, paint themselves, scream, holler, get drunk, tailgate party, completely out of their minds to, to be a fan of a team, to worship somebody playing some kind of sports thing that has nothing to do with salvation, redemption, your soul, mercy, forgiveness, the eradication of sin in a life that is miraculous. If you think for one moment I'm going to come here and not praise God and worship God, you have lost your mind. He saved me, sanctified me, picked me up, turned me around, pulled me out of Myry Clay set my feet on a rock to say I am free free indeed I'm gonna praise him and worship him with everything that I've got hallelujah he becomes the king who comes to be crowned the ironic coronation John chapter 1 and verse number 1 says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God Verse 14 of that same chapter, he said, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, the unseen king that is divinely frustrated in the Old Testament because there is a battle between idolatry and true worship and recognition of the king. He's unseen, decides to become the seen king, and he enters into the world. He becomes flesh, and he dwells among us. There were those that tried to figure this out, and they questioned. John chapter 8 and verse 57 the Jews said unto him thou art not yet 50 years old and hast thou seen Abraham Jesus said unto him them verily verily I say unto you before Abraham was I am the I am that spoke to Moses from a burning bush is now standing before you seen in the visions of the I am the God that was unseen becomes the God that is seen it was not only those individuals that were looking in from the outside even his own disciples questioned and said unto him Lord show us the father and it will be sufficient for us Jesus saith unto Philip have I been so long time with you and yet hast thou not known me Philip he that hath seen me hath seen the father and how sayest thou then show us the father Philip the unseen God of the Old Testament is standing before you in the seen format of a God that has become flesh. I am the king, Philip. I'm the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It may look ironic. I'm not coming in on a white horse. It may look like I'm not overthrowing governments, but I am the king and I'll be crowned with praise even when you may not understand it. And that is the irony. The irony. Jesus said, I and my father are one, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Ladies and gentlemen here this morning, let me present to you that the Jews were not picking up stones because Jesus was saying that he was in unity with his father. That's not why they were picking up stones. If he would have said that, they probably would have laughed him and, and moved on. They picked up stones to stone him because he was blaspheming by saying he was the father. 
I and my Father are one. Some translations and some, some, some uh, libraries, some books, some theologies, that's, that's what they go to. Well, there's such unity. And so when he said, I and my Father are one, he's talking about unity between God the Father and God the Son. No, the, he was saying in that passage there, Jesus was saying, just as he said to Philip, and just as he says to the rest of the Jews, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the I am. And so it's not a matter of unity in terms of some kind of relationship. It's in terms of identity. Identity. When you see me, you have seen the Father. Praise God. So the unseen God becomes the seen God in the New Testament. John chapter 20 and verse number 26, we have the amazing proclamation by Thomas. Anybody excited this morning about understanding and knowing who God is? <laughs> Praise God. At the end of John's gospel, after eight days, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, You doubter. <laughs> he didn't say that, but I'm just kind of adding in there. You doubter, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand and thrust into my side and be not faithless, but believing. <laughs> And Thomas answered and said unto him, watch some of the most amazing words in the scripture. I don't even know if he, if he said it. It doesn't say, but in my mind's eye, he wasn't standing when he said it. He wasn't standing, but he, he in, in deference, <laughs> he in deference. Now, that's just me, okay? That's what's fun about the scripture. You can, on some things, you can put your own interpretation in it. But I don't think he stood there and said, my Lord and my God. I think he knelt because he recognized this is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is not just somebody that performs miracles. This is someone that is greater. And while we may not have clearly understood prior to Calvary and the cross, on the other side of Calvary, when he is before us in his resurrected body, now we understand who Jesus said that he was and why it was significant that he went to Calvary and the cross. The reason is, Thomas said, is you are my Lord and my God. You are everything. Everything that the Jewish expectation has been looking for and the world desires. You are the savior of all humanity and you will reach to everybody in the entire world until you return once again for the church that you died for. Do you understand that you are in the church and you have the opportunity of saying, you are my Lord and my God. Amen. You're not insignificant, but you're so significant that I'm willing to let you take the reins and control of my life. Praise God. The movement of the unseen God in the Old Testament, the ironic coronation, he's moving towards something, and this is the ir irony. The divine frustration of not being able to be crowned as king by his constituents was not going to come in the form of his power and his majesty and his ability to do all the things that occur in his creative processes in the Old Testament. 
And so the unseen king decides to move toward a coronation, and that's where it becomes ironic. Jesus is moving towards something, this word that has become flesh. The heavenly realm has to be a gas because remember, the problem is not in heaven. The problem is in earth. <laughs> the angels recognize who he is and they worship him daily, 24-7. They understand who he is. And now he is making a movement in a way that they have not seen. The disciples certainly can't comprehend it. Creation groans at the thought of what he is doing. Jesus is moving with authority to something called the cross. And it is at the cross where he creates a new family. He dies for all humanity. There is no more at the cross. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. And the burdens of my heart roll away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. It's at the cross that there's no more Jew and Gentile because he breaks down that barrier. It's at the cross there's no more male and female. He breaks that boundary. There is no separation. There, there is a, there's a unity in the family of God that is stronger than any other familial relationships. And that's the way it should be. You should fight for your brother and sister based on a framework and a foundation that we're in the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of this world. Praise God. I got to be influenced by the scripture and by the word of God. That's my influence. My influence is not a political party. My influence is not Hollywood. My influence is not stars and fashion models and, 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 and moguls and financial folks. My, my audacity is to say, there is one that reigns supreme above all the kingdoms of this world. So whatever happens is going to happen in this world, but there is one that's greater than this world because he has overcome this world. And his name is Jesus. He comes to be coronated, ironically, not in some majestic thing that, that transfixed the world by its power and ability and wealth and all of this kind of stuff. He makes a move movement toward the cross and he reveals in this act a supreme act of love John said as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life John chapter 8 and verse 28 Jesus said when you have lifted up the son of man then shall you know that I am John chapter 12 and verse 32, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Is he going to be like some monarch that transfixes a nation where people get up in the morning at 3 o'clock because of the time change to see a royal wedding or a coronation that has a colonial effect on the entire world? And they're amazed because they're looking into a society and a culture that they know they could never, ever, ever be involved in and yet Jesus comes in humble origins and he makes a movement to something that includes everybody and it's at this cross that he is saying if I 
be lifted up. I will draw all people unto me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He, he comes to be crowned in an ironic way at a cross so that the family of God can include everybody, no matter what your status is, your social status, your financial status, no matter where you come from. You have a place at the table to say we all worship the same king and the same Lord. While we were yet without sinners, no longer are we servants, but we have become friends. And he reveals to us a model of what it means to love one another. Love as Jesus loved. What does that mean? Calvary and the cross. The cross is the definition of what love is where he says not my will but thine be done the crushing of self-will and the crushing of ego to humble himself and say I'm willing to give my life for humanity I want you to know today in this place I am the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up I am so thankful for what God has richly done for me I'm glad he came in the way even though it was ironic he didn't transfix the nations with his power and ability and wealth but he came to offer his life as a sacrifice so that I might be saved we don't need a Passover anymore because the cross is the new Passover you don't need a Passover lamb anymore because Jesus is the lamb when you find the lamb there is a new exodus <laughs> the new lamb provides a new exodus. I'm not coming out of Egypt, but I'm coming out of bondage for sure. We've, we've sung about it already this morning. He breaks every yoke of bondage and he gives us the ability to raise our hands. Aren't you thankful that when you worship God, there is nobody policing your actions? Wouldn't that be kind of strange if you stepped in the church building this morning and the devil was there to give you all the restrictions in the house of God? Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave and said to the devil, you have to get on out of here because I'm constituting a new family I'm creating a new exodus I'm providing a new Passover and there is nobody that can restrict your worship no more oppression liberation he whom the son has set free is free indeed there is no more enslavement but there is a freedom the cross is the new Passover the cross is where he is glorified glorified not by some monarchy but God himself in, a, in, in, in an ironic coronation he is not shamed this is so powerful he is not shamed at the cross he is glorified at the cross it's his crowning achievement this is where he has come to be coronated they do not put a crown of a lot of jewels. I had the opportunity of going through the Tower of London and looking at all the jewels of the monarchy and seeing crowns of kings protected because it represents millions of dollars. They don't press that kind of crown on his head. They put on his head a crown of thorns. The irony. King of kings is being coronated with a crown of throne thorns and an old rugged cross the world looks at it in abhorrence why would anyone descend to that low low estate but he does not descend ladies and gentlemen at the cross 
Come on, somebody, are you with me this morning? He does not descend at the cross. He ascends at the cross. It's not, it's not a lowly thing. It's an ascension because Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all individuals unto me. I'll be the king of kings for the lowly. I'll be the king of kings for the masses. I'll be the king of kings for those who are enslaved. And I, I, I will provide liberty. Man, 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 man. He's not chained, but he's glorified. It's a bloody mess, but it is a crowning achievement. He does not descend. He ascends. He conquers. He is victorious in what looks like defeat. The grave cannot hold him. Hell cannot restrict him. The devil cannot bind him. But, but he comes forth with all power in his right hand of authority. And he says, I'll be crowned. You could put a crown of thorns on my head. That's okay because I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. And I will be coronated at this place. The cross is where he is enthroned. And this is where he is crowned. And Pilate insists that a sign is put above his head. And the inscription says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, the Jews didn't like that. And they said to Pilate, you need to write on the sign that he said that he was the king of the Jews, not that he is the king of the Jews. <laughs> the Jews were not bad in and of themselves. The Jews that said, let his blood be upon our heads and our children. That doesn't mean that the rest of Jews for the rest of eternity have a mark on them. It means the Jews in that particular time frame and setting that said that also represented a realm of unbelief. And anytime you got a realm of unbelief on you, you're going to be a mark, whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, or whatever you are. And the devil is always saying, well, he's, he's not the king of the Jews. But there is a people that are constituted by his power and his name through the cross that always rise up and say, oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. Pilate said, he's the king of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Jesus is the universal king. And it is the cross where Jesus takes his rightful place on the throne. Bible says he was in all points tempted like as we are. He has the feelings of our infirmities. Yet he knew no sin. He runs speedily to our aid. This is where he is. The king. He's crowned at the cross. And he is able to rule from heaven and earth as we stand together in this place today. Praise God. He's crowned at the cross and is able to rule heaven and earth. In the Old Testament he was the unseen King. He ruled in heaven, but there was a discrepancy, a deep chasm on earth as people worshiped idols. But in the New Testament and the cross, he reigned supreme in heaven and on earth. And the constituents of his people are us. 
Amen. By his stripes we are healed because of his ironic coronation. Redemption is available to us. Salvation is secure. And this crown is represented by me and by you. And today I've come to the house of God to say that Jesus is on the throne. Amen. I don't care what the world looks like. Jesus is on the throne. I don't care what confusion there is. Jesus is on the throne. Whatever confusion you can find in all of the generation and centuries of history, Jesus is a sovereign God. I refuse to be influenced by what pressure there may be to conform to anybody else. Praise God. My eyes are constantly on the fact that Jesus is the King of Kings and he's the Lord of Lords. He's the Lord of all things. And I want to be a constituent that raises my hands and acknowledges Calvary was powerful. The cross is where he was crowned. He ruined pride and arrogance. He destroyed the ego. He championed faith and commitment. He took upon himself the burden of humanity's sins. My failures and my pain. He was persecuted. Praise God. He conquers sin. And he gives me an opportunity today to lift my hands in praise and worship. And say, Lord, you are my king. And you are my Lord. Praise God. As we lift our hands all over the sanctuary here today. And 